We're going to look in the Word this morning, Colossians chapter 1. So I'd ask if you would take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. This morning we return to the essentials of the faith. We're just going to jump right back into it. We have looked at the adage, unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and love in all things. And then we began looking or working our way through what our denomination has agreed and which we affirm are indisputable truths of the faith. These are truths that we are united on. These are truths that we defend. These are truths that we base our lives upon. And these are also truths that we lovingly and prayerfully, persuasively convince others of by the enabling of the Holy Spirit. Essentials of the faith. Thus far, just as a recap, we have looked at the first two essentials of the faith. The first one, the Holy Scriptures, as originally given by God, divinely inspired, infallible, entirely trustworthy, and the only supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. That's the first essential of the faith. second one, we've looked at one God, eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This morning, though this is the sixth part in this series, we look at the third essential of the faith. And this essential of the faith is the essential essential of the faith because it is about Jesus Christ. The essentials of the faith are not meant to be all-encompassing. We should, practically speaking, endeavor to keep the essentials limited. We should see these things as matters of life and death, matters upon which eternity hangs. And so if there are points or sub-points within these essentials, or more likely extending From these essentials, we can have liberty in them. For example, the last essential of the faith that we have in our doctrinal statement speaks about the resurrection of the lost unto damnation. That essential of the faith doesn't describe that damnation. It doesn't give damnation an exhaustive treatment. If you believe damnation includes literal flames, you can be in agreement with that statement. If you believe that damnation doesn't include literal flames, you can still be in agreement with that statement. Don't make details that are secondary to the statement into details that are necessary to the statement. Details that are secondary, even within or to that statement, must not be made necessary to the statement. Otherwise, you end up with every single statement of truth or fact as an essential over which you divide rather than unite. Now I say that because there are, even within essentials of the faith, things that are of greater importance or are more central. There are essentials even within the essentials, things of greatest importance. Even though the list is of vital, non-negotiable doctrines, there are things that are supreme within it. And today and for the next two weeks, we're going to tackle the most pivotal, most essential, essential of the faith. We're going to look at the person of Jesus Christ. I'm going to take three weeks because although essentials are not meant to be exhaustive, this point, by necessity, has a wealth of information in it. This is the third essential of the faith which we affirm. One Lord Jesus Christ our Savior, God manifest in the flesh, his virgin birth, his sinless human life, his divine miracles, 
his bodily resurrection, his ascension, his mediatorial work and substitutionary death, and his personal return in power and glory. The third essential of the faith, this we affirm to be true. There is one Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, God manifests in the flesh. His virgin birth, his sinless human life, his divine miracles, his bodily resurrection, his ascension, his mediatorial work and substitutionary death, and his personal return in power and glory. That is a massive statement. We're going to divide that statement up into thirds. The first third is a statement of who Jesus Christ is, and the latter two-thirds state truths about him. In a sense, it says first who he is and then what he is. So today we will look at that first third of it. We affirm one Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, God, manifest in the flesh. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would guide us this morning as we look into your word and into the statement of doctrine. We ask that you would give us wisdom and understanding and discernment. We ask that you would give us sharp minds that are quick and clear and concise. We ask that you would give us application of your word as well. That this would not just be growing theoretically, but that as we come to know you through your word, we would grow in relationship with you. That these clear, straightforward, laid out truths would transform us. Help us to walk pleasing to you. Help us to live pleasing to you. Help us to to know who you are so we can follow you well. We ask in this time that you would be glorified and that we would be built up and edified. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a wealth of information in that statement. Truly, even in the short version, the one-third, almost an exhaustible amount of information. But we will try to wrestle through it in a somewhat efficient manner, regardless. Colossians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 2, there are many powerful books within the Word of God, many powerful passages within the Word of God which speak of Jesus Christ. After all, this book is the revelation of Christ to us. But there are few passages which are as full and are as rich as the verses in Colossians in speaking of Christ. And I'm going to jump in here mid-thought, but since we're looking at the person of Christ, we will forego the instruction of Paul to the church in Colossae and read simply what Paul is saying about Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, that is Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And down to chapter 2, verse 8 or verse 9, actually. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. 
We're going to go through this passage and look at the truth claims that are made about Jesus Christ, and then we will do an overview of a few other verses in defense of the essential statement of the faith that we are examining. This provides a good solid passage which shows much of the proof of the essential statement of faith. It doesn't do it categorically. It doesn't do it in the sense that it works through each word at a time, which is what I would like to do. We see here first that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. That means that Christ is not simply a mirror reflection, but is the exact representation of God. He is the physical manifestation of an invisible being. For a picture of that, he would be our flesh to our spirit, who is the real you, the internal or the external? Well, it's the internal, but the external reveals the internal. Christ is the external expression of God. He is the full representation of God the Father in that Christ reveals. He reveals the character of God. He reveals his holiness. He reveals his righteousness, his justice, his love. Here in Jesus Christ, we have God revealed. He is the image of the invisible God from Colossians chapter 1. We also see that Jesus Christ is the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn is a poorly translated or at least poorly understood word. We think of firstborn as being chronological, but it isn't. We see in the Old Testament that some of the times the firstborn son is in the one who received the rights and authority and inheritance was not always the actual firstborn chronologically but was the chosen or favored one of the Father. And that is what is being referred to here in Colossians. The Greek word for firstborn is prototokos, which is derived from two Greek words. Proto means foremost, beginning or chief. And tikto is a second word, which means to produce or bear or bring forth. So when it says that he is the firstborn over all creation, it means that Jesus Christ is the foremost one who has been brought forth from the Father overall creation. It isn't like he is the first one to be created by God and thus overall creation or secondary creations. Firstborn doesn't speak of chronology here, as it often does with firstborn child. It speaks of being the foremost who proceeded from the Father. We see the emphasis is added here in the following words. Christ, it says, is the firstborn not of, which was an original translation, but much better, over all creation. That is, he is the supreme one who has come from God and as such has been placed in authority over all that is created. And the passage continues to affirm that very same thing. Verse 16, for by him, that is by Christ, all things were created. And it gives a whole list of them. Continuing at the end of that verse, all things were created through him and for him. He can't be of creation and still be the creator of all that is created. He is either creator of all and so over all, or he is part of creation. And this passage is very clear, abundantly clear, that Christ created all things that were created and that they have been created for him. And the proof of the passage just keeps piling up. Verse 17, he is before all things. You cannot have a created being being before all things. He has to be God to be before all things. And in him, all things consist, the creator and sustainer of all. Jesus Christ is the firstborn over all creation. 
Jesus Christ is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. We also see from Colossians chapter 1 and from Colossians chapter 2. In verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. That is not saying the Father disposed at some point in the past that Christ would be acceptable as the full display of the Godhead. The word the Father there are in italics, which means it's been added to clarify the expression. The NIV actually translates it better, for God was pleased to have all the fullness or all his fullness dwell in him, that is in Christ. It was right and acceptable and pleasing that all the fullness of the Godhead, the invisible, all-powerful, eternal God, should be expressed in physical form in Jesus Christ. Christ is the fullness of God. He is the full expression of that which we cannot see apart from him. Chapter 2, verse 9 repeats that emphatically. For in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Those two verses affirm at least two clear truths. Jesus Christ is eternally the fullness of God. That is, he is the complete embodiment and complete revelation of God. We don't need to look anywhere else to find God except in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not some side view of God. He's not even a progressive view of God. Jesus Christ is not just a a more gracious, tender aspect of God. Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God. He is the justice and the mercy. He is the wrath of God and the love of God. He is the holiness of God and the humility of God. This is who he is and who he has been and who he will be eternally. We have a poor view or a poor understanding of what, it's, what it means when it says that Jesus Christ is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. There is nothing that can be revealed about God that isn't revealed in Jesus Christ in that sense because he is the full expression of it. We tend to categorize it. We think that Jesus Christ is just the expression of the New Testament version of God. He isn't. We tend to think that Jesus Christ is just the expression of the soft attributes of God. He isn't. Jesus Christ is the expression, complete, full, the ultimate revelation of God. And not just God the Father, but the triune God. When we want to see God, we look at Jesus Christ. Now all that has been taken from Colossians chapter 1 and 2. And it is, in a sense, secondary to the essential statement of faith, but it gives us context for the essential statement of faith, and it actually proves many things that are within the essential statement of faith, the third one that we're looking at. I do want to go briefly through the actual essential statement of faith, the first third of it, and look one by one at the words that are in it. There is only one Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, God manifest in the flesh. One. Ephesians chapter 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. There is only one. We looked at that in our examination of the Trinity, that there is only one God. He is one in essence. That's what actually makes him who he is. Yet he is three in persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The person of Jesus Christ is that singularity in plurality. And he is one and only. 
He is the one and only Lord. Now, I'm not talking L-O-R-D, all in capitals, as in Old Testament, where it speaks of the actual name of Jehovah. I'm speaking capital L-O-R-D in the rest in small letters. Jesus Christ is the only one who is Lord eternally. Often in the Old Testament, God is given that standing, that stature. But in the New Testament particularly, we see that Jesus Christ, or our Lord Jesus Christ, it is the standing of Jesus Christ alone to be Lord. And we'll see that when we look at the definition of Lord, because it means Master, Jesus Christ. There is only one Master and Lord of all. That is why Acts chapter 10, verse 36 says, The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. There is one Lord. Romans chapter 14, verse 8 to 9. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the the dead and the living. There is only one who is Lord nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He who believes in the Son, John three thirty six, has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life. There is only one Lord. Jesus Christ is the one and only Lord. There is none beside him. There is no hope without him. There is no reconciliation but through him. There is no way, truth, and life but in him, one Lord. Christ is the one. We looked at the word one, and we looked at the word Lord. We say this perhaps without even thinking, both in our regular conversations about Christ and as we're looking through the essentials of the faith. Yeah, one Lord, Jesus Christ. We say it and we we don't give it the significance that it requires. There is vital truth in the word Lord. Jesus Christ is not merely a good teacher, He's not merely a prophet. He's not merely a healer or a philosopher or a leader. He is Lord. That's translated from the Greek word kurios, which means master. Supreme in authority, our one Lord. The term can be used both of humans and God, and we do not like to use it very often in regards to mankind anyways, except maybe as a benign title, especially since we're no longer under a feudal system of lords and peasants. So we refuse, generally, to use the word because we actually know what it means. And we're not going to give another human that title. Unfortunately, we often take the benign meaning of that word just as a Lord. It's just a title. And we apply that to Christ as well, which is equally to our detriment. When we call Jesus Christ Lord, we are acknowledging him as Master. We are acknowledging him as sovereign. We are acknowledging him as the controller of my life. And the choice is clear within the word of God. We will only serve one master. You can only serve one master. Scripture tells us, either serve God or serve money. Either serve God or serve self. Either serve God or serve Satan. Matter of fact, in places it says you're children of one or the other. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. Who is your Lord? No one can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and love the other or he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money, wealth. First John chapter 3, verse 10, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness 
is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. On and on it goes. Lord means master. Jesus is our Lord. He is the one to whom we have bowed. He is the one to whom we have sworn our allegiance. We serve him. We are joyful slaves. Romans talks about that. You no longer need to be slaves to sin. You become slaves to righteousness in Jesus Christ. We are joyful slaves for our supreme master, Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you every time you use the title or the name of Jesus Christ and refer to him as Lord, that you actually put that in your mind. That that is what you are representing. That that is what you are teaching. That that is what you are living. He is my master. Far more than a title. We affirm one Lord, one master. We affirm one Lord, Jesus Christ. I'm going to tackle both those titles of Jesus Christ together here. If you were to look at them simply, then Jesus Christ or Jesus is the personal name of Christ and Christ is his title. But even in that, that's why I, I love these doctrinal statements, these essentials of the faith. There is so much in that. You could spend, I could do a whole series on each one of these words within this essential statement of the faith about Jesus Christ. One, Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just a personal name. It is that. But it is far more than that. We know that in Old Testament particularly there, or New Testament times, that there was meaning actually applied to names, that it wasn't random or as random as we call it today. Even today though, when we name something deliberately, it's because we want to communicate something. Well, here, what is being communicated? Because it was deliberate. It wasn't randomly chosen. The name Jesus ascribes much to Jesus particularly because that name is ascribed to him from God. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel of the Lord by divine revelation tells Joseph that Mary will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Literally that reads, you shall call his name Jehovah saves because Jehovah will save. You shall call his name salvation of Jehovah for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is salvation. That is what his name means. That is what he has come to accomplish. That is the eternal appointment of Christ. That takes us back to Acts chapter 4. There is salvation in no other name. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which you must be saved. He is salvation. 1 John 3 verse 5, We know that he was manifested this is Christ, to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. 1 Timothy 1.15 This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. John 1.29 The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On and on and on it goes. Jesus, by name, by very definition, is salvation. Jesus is also the Christ. And that's not to be taken lightly either. Christ literally means Messiah or anointed one, and not just as in some Messiah, because they were always looking for a Messiah, not just as in an anointed one, but the Messiah, the anointed one. In the Old Testament, to appoint someone or to consecrate them was to set them apart to an office, to place responsibility and authority upon them. Christ, 
has all the authority of God upon him because he is the anointed Messiah of God. Jesus Christ is the anointed prophet, priest, and king to his people. He is Messiah. From the Garden of Eden, mankind had been awaiting the Messiah who would crush Satan's head and liberate us from the bondage of sin and death. We are all born in hopelessness and helplessness. We are under the curse of sin. We are dead and destitute. We are in rebellion against God. There is an enmity between man and God. We're under condemnation. We're deserving of wrath. We have been held to the light of his standard and been found wanting. We need a redeemer. We need a rescuer. We need the Messiah, the Christ. Christ is that Messiah. And all of that is contained in the name and title of him. Isn't that incredible? Jesus Christ. God's salvation through his anointed Messiah, Jesus Christ. We affirm one Lord, Jesus Christ. Makes you think of that song, what a beautiful name. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful name. And nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ. We affirm one Lord Jesus Christ. We affirm one Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, we've already considered the word Savior when we looked at Jesus, which is what Jesus means, salvation. But I don't want to miss that little word in that essential statement of the faith, the word our. We affirm one Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. That is, he came for his own He came to save his elect. He is the means God has appointed for salvation of those who are his, all those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ. He is ours. Christ is not theirs in the sense that he is for someone else. Absolutely, he is for others as well. But even in this statement of faith, it is personal, it is individual. He is our Savior. He is going beyond our, he is mine. And I pray that you know he is yours and you are his. In John chapter 1, 11 to 12, says, He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. But verse 12 goes on to say, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. All those who receive him and believe in his name are his children. He is mine and I am his. It says there that we are called, that we are the appointed, we are the elect of God. We who have responded in faith are his. It's a wonderful statement. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, then you are his and he is yours. And the wonder of that is that it is a glorious display of his grace and mercy because it is not because of your merit. You cannot call him your Lord, our Savior, because of what you have done but because of who he is and what he has done. Child of God, by grace through faith, he has promised never to leave you nor forsake you. He has promised that nothing shall separate you from his love. He is not a distant or removed master. He is not just a God who is in heaven. He is our, he is my Savior. First Peter chapter 2. This is to all those who have been declared righteous by grace through faith. You, child of God, you, Christian, are a chosen generation, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and you are chosen. You are his own special people. You are called. You are now the people of God. You are his. He is yours. Yes, God is doing a sovereign work across this globe, across this nation, of redeeming people for himself, but he's also doing an individual work of redeeming you for himself. This is personal and individual. He is our Savior. Lastly, we affirm one Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, God, manifest in the flesh. We looked at that briefly from Colossians. I don't want to leave it as a sub-point, though. It is a major point that God became flesh. God became man and dwelt among us. Philippians chapter 2 says, He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. God made himself no one. He manifested himself. He revealed himself in physical form, the man, God, Christ Jesus. When the fullness of time had come, Galatians 4, verse 4, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. One of the most powerful verses in defense of this, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. On and on it goes. There are a lot of verses about that. This is the perfect work of God, that God became flesh to be the perfect sinless lamb, to die in utter humility, to be the substitutionary sacrifice, to pay the penalty for our sins in our place. The incarnation of Christ is essential. It is necessary, not for God to be God, but for us to be saved, that God became flesh. In God's righteous plan of declaring guilty sinners innocent, the manifestation of God in human form is indispensable. It is necessary. And so we affirm the truth that Christ is God in the flesh. One Lord, Jesus Christ, our Savior, God manifest in the flesh. That's a lot to cover. And it's all just touching the tip of the iceberg. But it is essential. This is the character of Jesus Christ we're talking about. And it is wondrous beyond our imagination. It will take eternity for us to fathom it. We will have eternal cause to delight in it. The revelation of God to man is summed up in this statement. In this person, Jesus Christ. There is no salvation without him. He is the one Lord. There is no one greater than him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the one Lord, supreme master and controller of all. There is salvation in no other. He is Jesus, the salvation of Jehovah. There is no other authority but him. He is the anointed Messiah of God, the Christ. In him there is hope and joy and peace and contentment and even overwhelming delight in the fact that he is our Savior. It is individual and personal. He is 
the complete and full and all-inclusive revelation of God to man, for he is God manifest in the flesh. Literally, that means the exhibition of or to render apparent. Jesus Christ is the rendering apparent of God. That is all included in the first third of this third essential statement of the faith. What a powerful statement this is that we affirm to be true, even though we've only looked briefly at a third of it. One Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, God manifest in the flesh, his virgin birth, his sinless human life, his divine miracles, his bodily resurrection, his ascension, his mediatorial work in substitutionary death, and his personal return in power and glory. There is no room for disagreement over Jesus Christ, especially that beginning of it. One, no other way. Lord, Master and Savior, Jesus, the salvation of God, Christ, the anointed Messiah, my Savior, God, who became flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you not just for the words which have been put down on paper, which make good sense, but we thank you for the truth that is communicated within these words, that it is reality that you are Lord of all, that you are the salvation of God, that you that there is one, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Thank you that you are my, that you are our, that we can personalize that, not because of our merit, but because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, because of your grace and mercy which you have poured out, because you have called us to yourself. May we continually utter praise of thanksgiving to you. We thank you that God became flesh and revealed the character, the person of the triune God, that you stepped into this creation of yours to redeem it, to redeem us. Even when in justice and in holiness, you could have annihilated, you could have destroyed, you could have sentenced under your wrath eternally. You intervened. You are the Messiah, the Anointed One. You are the Redeemer. And thank you as well that you are you are coming again. And I pray that when you return, you would find us faithfully and delightedly serving you. For we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.